Welcome to the Foundations of Learning podcast, where we believe every child deserves a tailored and enriching educational experience. By embracing diverse perspectives and sharing practical tips, I hope to inspire you to actively participate in your child's learning journey, fostering a love for knowledge and nurturing the skills necessary for success in a rapidly changing world. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are going to talk about the reading wars. How did we get to where we are today in our education system where 66% of fourth graders are not reading on grade level and 69% of eighth graders are not reading on grade level? How did we get here? Have we always been here? Did it start in 2020? Was it the pandemic? We're going to talk about it. All right, so before I get started, I do want to provide a couple of definitions for some um, literacy theories or approaches that I'm going to be talking about so that you kind of understand what each one is, and we will go through the history of what we've been teaching throughout our history in America and then what we are going towards. So the first thing I want to talk about is the whole language method. Um So I'll go through the years and everything of when we were teaching whole language, but basically what this method is, is it's a method of teaching reading and writing, which emphasizes learning whole words and phrases by encountering them in meaningful context rather than by phonics exercises. So basically we just taught kids to memorize words, think like the Dick and Jane books. Those were books where it was based more on memorization or using, um, like picture cues or context to try to figure out a word. And we would teach like, this is what it sounds like when we read copy me and we would do a lot of copying. That was whole language. Okay. Then you have balanced literacy. So balanced literacy is a method that uses both phonics and whole language theory. So like in the beginning, like in kindergarten and stuff, they would teach the letter sounds. They would teach phonemic awareness, which phonemic awareness is um, the ability to segment individual sounds in a word or blend those individual sounds together to make a word. Um, And then also memorizing sight words. This approach is paired with something called shared reading. This is where you would be reading a book together, discussing strategies that you use to read the story, and then you would have guided reading. So the students would read a leveled reader and the teacher would ask questions um, and do different prompts and things as they're reading. Um, And then independent reading. So that's just what it sounds like where the child just reads independently Um, And then as they got older, they did a little bit more of a word study. So they would work on memorizing sight words, reading onset and rhymes. So onset is just beginning sound. Rhyme is just that rhyming piece, right? The the chunk that sounds the same as the other words. Um, And then they would start to talk about like endings, prefixes, suffixes, and then obviously memorizing even more sight words. So... As you can see, this was kind of an approach where we're like, okay, we're going to start teaching some letter sounds, but we're still going to use picture cues. We're still going to use memorization. We're still going to use context clues to try to figure out a word. Um, I was that teacher that in college, I was taught balanced literacy. That is what they taught us. That is how I would teach my kids to read in my classes. Spoiler alert. (laughs) It's not the best way to teach. Um, because memorization, we have like over, I Googled it, it was like 170,000 to 250,000 words in the English language today. Can you memorize 170, just 170,000 is wild, but can you memorize 170,000 things? No, you can't. Like, it's just, you're not going to be able to do that, right? So anywho, balanced literacy is 
kind of taking phonics and phonemic awareness and then using also the terrible strategies as well. And some might argue that balanced literacy is the best way. That's why we call it the reading wars. Okay, so the very last one we have is structured literacy. This method is highly explicit and systematic in teaching all of the important com components of literacy. So this is going to be phonological awareness, which is really just the ability to um, understand and manipulate sounds and words. This is completely auditory. You have phonics, which is the sound spelling. So now those sounds that we were working with in the auditory form are now being shown. So we're looking at spelling patterns um, and the sounds that they make and corresponding those to actual letters. Then you have decoding and encoding. So decoding is actually the reading part. So you're segmenting sounds with those sound spellings and blending them back together to make a word. Encoding is spelling. So now we have to take those sound spellings that we've learned and we have to pull them from our brain to then write down the sounds that are correct in making that word. And then we have word meaning or vocabulary. So we're really looking in depth at how our English language works. So therefore, we're looking at prefixes, root words and base words, suffixes, um, all of those word endings, looking at the rules that we have for ED, ING, what are the meanings of ED and ING, why do we add them, right? So really, really diving into the meaning of a word, not just based on context, but based on how the word is put together and the meanings of the prefix, the root word, the base word, the um, suffix, and then coming up with our own meaningful definition of what that word actually means. So it's not as simple as here's the definition to the word, which is what I remember growing up. And even what I did with my students is here's the definition to the word, right? It's not as meaningful for them because they are again, having to memorize something. And then we have fluency and fluency is not just, can my child read this word, these words correctly or whatever it is about rate. So how quickly we're reading it. It's about, um, the understanding of exclamation points, question marks, periods, and that our inflection of our voice changes as we are reading those, um, understanding accuracy and reading with accuracy, um, reading like we talk. So we're not reading super fast or super slow. It just sounds natural, right? So those are all pieces to fluency. Um, and then we have the comprehension piece because now we're going from the learning to read to reading to learn. And really the way we can get to comprehension is to have those solid foundations of how to read and then now we can learn from it although you can practice comprehension with kids that are not yet reading by doing read alouds um, and things like that and still discussing the stories with them even if that story is above their reading level um, so that was structured literacy so I'm going to go through some history, like American history, because it is important to understand when we're looking at the education system, the way the education system is set up today, and why we are in these reading wars, because we took a lot of philosophies from the 1800s, and we're still kind of applying those to what we have in the education system today, which is wild, because, you know, it's it's been almost 200 years now where why are we doing the same thing? We are different in our society. We have different tech, technological advances and things like our society is not the same. So it's very interesting. So in the early years of American history, most people were actually informally educated. Um, this really did have to do with the fact that 
I mean, we didn't have we didn't have schools. I mean, in Europe, they had schools. They did. Um, but here we didn't. So what people did in the early days of America is they either sent their child to a specialized school um, to teach them reading, writing, and arithmetic, um, or they sent them to other families that could teach these skills, um, or they would just teach these skills to their children themselves um, if they had the ability, if they were literate um, and knew how to do arithmetic, they would teach them the very basics, um, or they would teach them a trade that would be useful for them to use in the future, right? So if the family owned some sort of business or if they were farmers or if they were, you know, metal workers, whatever it was, they would teach their children these trades so that the children could then inherit whatever it was that they were doing with their business. Um, but one big thing um, that a lot of the uh, people that came over to America believed was that it was their duty to teach their children to read because everybody should know how to read the Bible. The Bible was very big back in the early days of America. And they need, they thought like even our founding fathers thought like it is your duty to ensure that your child knows how to read so that they can read the Bible because the Bible teaches us very important, um, uh, I guess, morals or whatever beliefs, values, whatever you want to say. Okay. So it was important that they did know how to read. So how did they teach their kids to read? What were they doing? What were they using? Did they just know how to do this? Were they using memorization? What were they doing? So the most popular book that which it was actually, so the best-selling book was the Bible, but like the second best-selling book was a book called The New England Primer. It was published in 1690 and it actually taught children to read using a phonics approach. So what that means is that they would teach them the sound spelling. So they would, you know, obviously teach them the letter sounds of the alphabet and they would teach them it like individual spellings, like vowel teams and diphthongs and things like that. Like they were actually teaching them the sound spellings. And that was the most um, popular approach to teaching reading of the time until the 1800s. So I'm talking like mid to late 1800s. So obviously America, 1776, that was our founding, right? Um, but in the, so like a hundred years or so or less had passed. Um, and so now we were more developed, right? Our country was developing a little bit more. We had our cities and now we were starting to have schools pop up. Most of the schools that were popping up were actually like uh, what we would consider high schools, or they would call them like specialized schools. So the parents were still teaching the very basics of reading, writing, and arithmetic. And then they would send their kids to a school that was more specialized so that they could actually specialize in something and advance their own knowledge in certain topics. So the families were still primarily teaching their own children the very basics of like what we teach in elementary schools. Um, and really the schools that were popping up were in Massachusetts. Like that's where it was originating. Um, so there is a man named Horace Mann. He is known as the father of the American education system. A lot of his philosophies uh, kind of carried over into what our education system is today. He obviously wasn't... Uh, the one that really started the compulsory schooling, although his philosophies were, from what I've read, um, very foundational to what our schools are today. 
So although he wasn't the one that really pushed for the, not that he didn't push for compulsory schooling, he definitely did. And he definitely believed that the school system was the mother to our children and that the state had a responsibility to educate everyone. Um, But his view of what we should be doing with education and what we should be teaching and all of that stuff is not really what we're doing today, but it kind of goes in the same realm. So I'm going to kind of go through some things that he talked about. So um, he actually had a journal called the Common Journal or the Common School Journal. Um, And oh, before I go over this to Horace Mann, he was like a political figure. He was an educator. Um all of that stuff. So anywho, that's kind of who he was. Um, But I'm going to read some inserts from his journal that he started in 1852. Um, It was said to be one of the most important education journals of its time. And this journal was devoted to the cause of education. It proposed to improve the common schools. That's what they called like what we would call public schools today and other means of education to report on laws relating to schools and on the proceedings of the Massachusetts Board of Education, as well as to explain the duties of parents and teachers and address children on good behavior. So Massachusetts was really like the hub of what started the wildfire of schools. Um, They were kind of the ones that set the precedent of what the schools were going to look like, how we were going to teach the kids, what type of teacher training needed to happen, um, and so on. So it really was kind of the foundation of what we were starting to do in America with educating everyone. So why I'm saying that it changed in the 1800s of why we went from a phonics approach to a uh, whole language approach had not everything to do with Horace Mann. I'm sure there were a lot of other factors, but he was kind of the model of like how we should be doing things. He was very influential. Um, And so his reading philosophy was that children can only be taught to read by imitation. They do not care for rules. They disregard them. They are not made to understand what they are to read and they hear and hear it read naturally and effectively. They will not often fail to imitate from example successfully. It is not the knowledge of rules, but the understanding of the sediment that will make them read naturally. It may be otherwise with adults. They may possibly study rules and read correctly by their aid, but we believe they will be profited more by a few attempts to imitate a good reader. So basically he's saying that children don't care about the rules. They're not going to learn to read by the rules. Just model it for them. Show them how to read. Just read to them and then they'll read. Um, And so a lot of what he was discussing is the whole language approach. So what he says is that um, we have generally found that the reading of recitations, which were occasionally given not so much to illustrate the rules as to relive the tedium produced by endeavoring to expand or enforce them, did all the good that was done and the teachers were deceived. We have had some practice in teaching of this art and we had much deplorable experience in our endeavors to acquire what little skill we may have and humble indeed are 
our attainments, but the convictions have been forced upon us that the only effectual way for a teacher to teach children is to read to them and with them much and freely. So he said, phonics is stupid. We're not doing phonics. Kids don't learn that way. We're just going to read to them because he said in this journal that when he would listen to kids read or he would listen to other adults read, which were taught by phonics, he did not believe that they sounded good. They didn't sound right. They didn't sound like a good reader. He didn't like it. So he wanted us to model to the kids what it sounded like to read. So it was really all about like show for him, like what it sounded like, what it looked like. So he goes on to talk about phonography, which is basically phonics, right? It's it's what we call today phonics. Um, and he basically said that there was little reports on teaching phonography and its reliance and actually teaching kids to read. Um, and that he believed that if you were not a capable teacher or a capable student, you did not learn by phonics. You just needed to be shown the glorious way of what it sounds like to actually be this good reader. And that if you had a crappy teacher, basically, or which, I mean, that's true. If you have a crappy teacher, you're not going to learn things, but, um, or the children were not as smart, like he Kind of, from what I'm assuming, he, from what I've read, he believed that you were either smart or you weren't. So if you were a smart kid, then you could just learn phonics. If you were not a smart kid, you needed to be shown how to do it just by reading to them. Um, and so he was super against phonics. Like whole language was his jam. And he basically said that kids will actually learn faster and better by doing a whole language approach. Now, there is actually science that shows that, yeah, you can get kids to memorize words pretty quickly. But what happens and what we're seeing now is that by the time they get to fourth grade, by the time they get to eighth grade, their reading and abilities really start to shine because we're reading very complex words and they have no strategies to figure out what those words mean. And now they have to memorize even more words and more words and more words. And we have so many words in our English language, it's like almost impossible to get them to memorize all of these words. And so what's happening is kids can fake it in the very beginning because the words are pretty easy. There's not a big variation of words until they start getting into those older grades. And so a lot of kids can fake it. And that is why also doing nonsense words or pretend words is so important to do with your children because if you give them pretend words, and I'm talking like, I don't know, VAP, VAP would be a good example, or even like VASH, right? Now I'm adding a digraph and seeing, can they, can they figure out what this word says? Because if they cannot, that means they do not have the ability to segment and blend. And you might say, well, that's a useless skill to have because why not just teach them to memorize and whatever, I've heard it all. But you have to have those skills. And if you look at our reading data, it's showing that that is, that's a lot of what is lacking. These kids do not have strategies to read these words because they have faked it and they sound like they can read because they've memorized a lot of words, but they actually cannot. And once you become a fluent reader, yes, it is a lot of um, what you would say, quote unquote, memorization at that point. But we have a lot of science and I will go into that, but we're going to keep going. So... Um, you're probably wondering like, well, why would we just all of a sudden switch? Like phonics is the most, you know, um, popular approach. And now all of a sudden there's this guy that's like, no, whole language all the way. Well, like I had said, he was what we called the father of the American education system. And he was a large advocate for 
what they called common schools, which are basically public schools. So he had six principles that he believed should shape the school system and that everybody should have a school system. He believed in what he called free education for everyone. It really wasn't free. Obviously, you have to pay taxes. Your taxes go towards the education system. Um, It's not free. That's what the government likes to do. They like to tell us it's free. But in reality, it's just they're taking from the taxes. Um, And so these were his six principles. And when I read them, it's really funny because it does encompass a lot of what our education system is set up on today. So the first one, citizens cannot maintain both ignorance and freedom. True. This education should be paid for, controlled, and maintained by the public. I agree. This education should be provided in schools that embrace children from varying backgrounds. True. This education must be non-sectarian. This education must be taught using tenets of free society. Or sorry, (laughs) I read that wrong. This education must be taught using tenets of a free society. And the very last one, this education must be provided by well-trained professional teachers. So if you don't know much about our education system, I did my schooling to become an educator. So they talk a lot about um, the education system and um, the bills that are in place for the education system. And it really does encompass like those six aspects. Although I want to ask you these questions. One, is it maintained by the public? As an educator, I can tell you that I'll give you an example and you tell me, is it maintained by the public? So as an educator, you, we had to pick new curriculums. Um, My district was uh, doing very well in teaching kids literacy. Um, We actually had the Board of Education come to our schools because we were number one in our state for literacy scores in K through three. Um, and we were a very what you would call disadvantaged school. So we were a Title I school. We had a lot of English language learners, um, low income families, things like that. So they would consider that more of a disadvantaged school. And what we do see is that there is an education gap for those kids that are English second language or um, lower income where they are at a lower level in their literacy, their math and so on. And so the fact that we were beating the entire state, you know, um, of these schools that were from high income and so on was a giant feat. And the, the board of education was kind of like, what are you guys doing? Like, how are you doing this? Anywho, that was kind of a side note, but we had to choose a curriculum, um, a new curriculum because the curriculum we were using, um, was not really embodying, the research of the science of reading because the research or the science of reading really is just a body of research on how to best teach kids to read. It was actually developed for dyslexic kids, but we realized that, oh my gosh, this can actually help all kids learn to read. So anywho, we were choosing curriculums and it was really funny because we had to vote. We went in, we spent like an hour of our time looking at these curriculums and deciding which ones were actually going to embody the science of reading and was going to be the best for our kids and what they needed. And so we submit this and (laughs) then we're told, all right, great. Thank you for the input. We have to submit this to the Board of Education and they have to approve it. If they don't approve it, then we have to go with whatever curriculum they tell us. So I don't know. I mean, is it maintained by the public? I don't know. Because, I mean, even as educators, like for who we, what we thought was going to be best for our kids in our area, 
we still didn't really have a choice. Kind of seemed like we did, but we didn't. So when you're looking at those, you think those sound great, right? They really do. So I'm going to read to you what his journal was, what his views were. Why did he start this journal? Why did he believe in common schools? He says, we have maintained that such a state of things is inconsistent with our duty to the rising generation, every child of which has an equal right to an education and to an education equal to best, which is in a bill that we have for the right to a free and equitable education or whatever, which again, the word free drives me crazy. Anywho, if education is necessary to the security of property, the progress of civilization and the salvation to say nothing of the perfection of our civil and religious institutions, then do we hold the government responsible? for the education of every child and if in accordance with our democratic principles the states and towns and districts are to be allowed to educate the children the government is bound to see that the work is done effectually done and that no child is any longer to be cursed with ignorance because it is born in a I'm not going to say this part, but anywho or be night in the neighborhood so basically if they came from a background um, it didn't matter whatever background they come from. We can't let like ignorance, you know, is not bliss. Like you need to know about how to be an American essentially is really what his idea was. So he goes on to talk about, because this, this was the big thing was people were upset. Um, because obviously when people came over from America or to America, they did differ in religion. And that was kind of like the founding of our country, right? That we had liberty, we had freedom, we had, um, you know, you could, you could, whatever religion you were, it didn't matter. You could practice that religion. We weren't going to, you know, make that a criminal act if you were participating in a, a religion that we didn't think was the correct one. But then when he comes in to say is basically <laughs> that we should be reading the Bible. And if you um, are not reading the Bible, we should have the Bible in schools. This is what's going to Americanize you. Um, and he really goes into talking about what we did with the Native Americans and trying to Americanize them um, and then talking about the Irish and he did not like the Irish and that they were not Americanized and that the only way that we were going to be able to Americanize the people in our society were to make sure that we are reading the Bible, that we are teaching them what it is to be an American, what that looks like, what that sounds like, and really just changing behaviors, changing people so that they acted and looked in the way that we thought was American. Um, which is really funny because when you look at his six principles, it's that we are provide or embracing children from varying backgrounds and I'm like what you're saying is not very embracing it doesn't sound like your views are very embracing it sounds like you know anywho so it's funny because when you look at our education system today and like what is it the NEA actually came out the head or the director of the NEA came out and basically said that like the primary responsibility of the teachers is like social reform, essentially. So like we need to make sure that we're teaching these kids how to socially, um, I guess, enact in, in our country, right? And I personally don't believe that. I do think that schools can be a place um, for kids that 
if they are from a disadvantaged background, like sometimes that is the only safe place or the um, a place where they can feel loved, get the attention they need and so on, which is a really sad thing, right? And, and Horace Mann talks about this. He talks about what do we do with these kids that are of, um, come from a disadvantaged background? Like, is it the responsibility of the state to then take them under their wing and teach them what it is um, to be a proper citizen in the America, in, in America, right? So I feel like there is this fine line of what, how can we as an, as Americans, right? Like we are all Americans. If you are an American citizen, no matter what your background is, no matter what you look like, no matter what you believe, right? You are a citizen of America and we are Americans. And who is it? How can we come together and say like, this is what all people should believe. And this is what all, it kind of goes against like what our founding was and every single community in America is going to look slightly different. If you travel around America, you can see that if you, you know, go to California, their culture, their beliefs, the way that their communities are set up are going to be very different. And even if you travel from one end to Cal- of California to the next, cities are going to look different and each community is going to look different. So how can we sit there and say, we have to have, make sure that everybody in the country is at an understanding. Yes, there are certain things that we have to understand, but I think it's more about how to be a good person and how to treat others well and work hard work, critical thinking, problem solving. Like there are certain things that yes, we should be teaching, but there are things that I feel that the education system is starting to infringe upon on values of families that they're like, I've seen it, right? Families are like, well, that is not what I believe. I don't want my child to be taught those things. And I think it's important to kind of take a look at that and say, maybe we need to decentralize it a little bit more. We need to not be so centralized in our views of the education system. And we need it to be based on, like he said in one of his principles, that it should be controlled and maintained by the public. And the public, I feel like, is so overreaching in America that it's like it needs to be into smaller chunks or societies, right? Like, we can all agree that we all need to be great humans to one another. That's something we can agree on. But anywho, I believe that the school system really should be about teaching the child to read, to write, do arithmetic, science, history, like all of those things so that they can go into whatever direction they want um, in whatever their future endeavors are. But I don't believe it's the teacher's number one role to like socially reform everyone. Like I, I don't agree with that. Maybe you do. Um, And that's totally fine, right? We all have beliefs and things and we can agree to disagree. So anywho, he goes into talking about that and you're probably wondering like, why the heck are you telling me all these things? It's because we actually did the whole language, what he was talking about in the late, well, mid to late 1800s. It started to pop up like wildfire and all of a sudden we decided that whole language was the best approach to teaching kids to read. And we took the whole language approach for a very, very long time. By the 1950s, the whole language approach was considered conventional wisdom of teaching students to read, thinking that children should should read for meaning from the very beginning by memorizing sight words and using context and picture cues. Like I said, think Dick and Jane books. 
Okay. In 1955, American children were not proficient readers and writers, thus began another reading war like previous in the 1800s. So we went from like 1850s, we were like saying that like whole word language and all of a sudden wildfire, everyone's doing whole word language or whole language learning. And then in the 1950s, a hundred years have passed and we're like, hold on. Americans can't read and write proficiently. Like we can't, we can't do this. So there were lots of books read or not read, written about phonics or whole, whole language instruction. Which one should we do? Um, so by the 1960s, we began investigating through psychology, education, linguistics, and neuroscience on how children actually learn to read. And we were beginning to find that the explicit and systematic phonics approach was far superior than whole language in teaching kids to read based on what we were seeing happening just in their abilities and also in their brain because we were starting to realize what parts of our brain actually um, are the parts that help us to become proficient readers. And what's funny is um, with the whole language approach, these things in our brain actually don't um, fire up. Because really all you're doing when you're doing whole language is you're teaching your, the brain to rememorize like a shape. Um, and so it's like a visual. It's like a picture almost. Um, anyways, so very, very interesting. So anywho, we do all this research that basically shows that whole language approach is crap. And we continue doing whole language instruction. <laughs> I don't know. Don't ask me. Like why? I don't know. So then in the 1990s, okay still in the 90s, we're like, okay, whole language is not working. We're, our kids still can't read and write. So let's try something different. Let's do balanced literacy. So in the 90s, we're doing balanced literacy, which I had talked about what that was, right? So we're incorporating some, some phonics, but still sticking to that whole language approach. Um, and so now we're <laughs> in this literacy war of, all right, we're going to do balanced literacy. This is how we're going to teach kids. And here we are in 2022. And as of 2022, majority of teachers are still using a balanced literacy approach. And how is that going? Well, I told you at the beginning, 66% of fourth graders are not reading on grade level. 69% of eighth graders are not reading on grade level. And I urge you to just go Google like fourth grade reading level or sixth grade reading or sorry, eighth grade reading level. And you will put your palm to your face and say, what the heck? Why can kids not read these things? It is because we were still practicing a balanced literacy approach. And that's what I was taught in college, which I did not graduate that long ago. And that's what I was taught and how to teach kids to read. And I was struggling. It was like me and my students were on a boat and there were multiple holes in this boat and I was trying to plug the holes and then more holes would appear. And I didn't know how to clog them all up so that we could all happily float down the river. Like it was a mess. And I knew that there was something that was not working. Like I was like, this does not work. And that's when I started doing my own research. And then I learned about the science of reading, which is that um, approach of structured literacy. And I was like, it just made sense. I was like, well, yeah, that's how we should teach kids. It's literally like building skills that they need, teaching them explicitly. Like, duh, that makes so much sense. Anywho, so now we are in a new era and now we are 
in another set of reading wars. Should we do balanced literacy or should we do structured literacy? And there are a lot of people on the internet right now or on social media that's like, structured literacy, let's do structured literacy. And then you have a lot of educators that are still pushing against it. And they're like, nah, I've been doing this for 30 years. It works just fine. And I'm like, show me your data. How are you doing? Like, how is this actually working fine when you look at our literacy scores? It's obviously not working fine. Um, and this is a heel that I'm going to die on. Like if you are still using balanced literacy and if you're a parent listening to this, and you're like, I have no idea what that is. A lot of curriculums still use that approach. A lot of people are still teaching that approach and it is not helpful for our students. It just isn't. Um, the International Dyslexia Association actually coined the term structured literacy um, as a comprehensive approach that teaches the structure of our language in a systematic, cumulative, and diagnostic way. And it's just so sad because this problem is so fixable. It is. And I had so much success in teaching my students to read using structured literacy, which encompasses the science of reading, which is that body of research. And if it helps dyslexia students, it's definitely going to help students that are not dyslexic. And I was beating the average reading scores in the entire nation. Like I was kicking butt because I was using structured literacy and my kids were flourishing. Like they were thriving. Like I had first graders reading on fourth and fifth grade levels, third grade levels, like way above a first grade level. And they loved to read. And there were kids that definitely, you know, they would come to me in first grade and they'd be like, I, I, I can't read. I don't know how to read. I don't, and I would just tell them, let's, let's practice this first skill right here. I know you can practice this skill. It breaks it down into such a small little skill that can make them feel successful so quickly that they begin to like get so excited. I had this little boy last year that he, every time we went to reading, just total crocodile tears. And he's like, I can't, I don't want to. And I'm like, listen, let's do some things first to warm up. And we would practice our letter sounds. And I was like, look how good you are at your letter sounds. You know all your letter sounds. Let's do some of these letter sounds and let's see if we can make a funny word. And like, I just made it very simple and we would just do two letter sounds and then we would warm them up with that. And he's like, I can read those words. I'm like, yes, you can. Let's practice this next one. So then we started doing consonant, vowel, consonant. I was doing three sounds with him, right? And then I would do four sounds and I would just keep doing it. And eventually he was like, oh, I can read. I can do this because I gave it to him in little chunks. I built upon in a very systematic and explicit way and we worked together. And then he was the one that he would literally after his math was done, he's like, can I go read a book? Go for it. You go read a book, my dude. Like that was a big win because in the beginning he was crying and it was because the approaches being used in kindergarten, some of which were memorization, and he did not thrive on memorization, which most people don't. And so for him, it was like he just felt like he was at a loss, like he had to memorize these words and he wasn't good at memorizing them. And when I gave him an approach, a strategy to actually read words, it was like this thing clicked and he felt confident. He knew how to do it. And that is what can happen when we use best practices. So the reading wars make me very angry because I have been there, I have done that, and I have seen that we can fix this problem, but we're still fighting over stupid things like balanced literacy or structured. Dudes, we have the science. Like, what are we waiting for? So I just want you to know that 
you have the ability to, if you are a parent, help your child to learn to read in a very systematic and explicit way. Be successful in that. And your child will actually love reading because they are confident. They know how to do it. They have the strategies. They find it really fun to look at our words and like know that it's like a puzzle. You can literally put different pieces together and make a silly word or make a word mean something different. It's so fun for them to play with our English language. And when you are teaching the best strategies, they will be confident and you can do this. You don't have to have a fancy educational degree because I have a fancy education degree and it did me no good. It did not teach me best practices. So if you are ever interested in learning how to teach your child to read in an effective way that will actually breed confidence and they will thrive and you can be successful in teaching them and they can be successful in reading, check out my online course that I created for parents. I use the research of the science of reading, but provide you with the strategies that you use within structured literacy to teach the concepts that they need to be confident and proficient readers and writers. As always, I hope that this podcast was helpful. I hope that you learned something new today or that you can take something from that and it maybe it inspires you to take charge of your child's education, whatever it is. But as always, keep learning and have a fantastic day.